words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. Can you hear it? The sound of a ticking clock. My life and your life circumscribed by time, relentless, unforgiving, limited, unstoppable time, tick-tock, tick-tock. Statisticians tell us that the average person lives 25,915 days, of which they spend 7,709 days sitting down, 180 days exercising, 10,625 days looking at a technological device, TV, computer, tablet, telephone, and a tragically meagre, paltry 117 days making love. Of all those hours, minutes and seconds, the truth is, some of us have used up quite a few. Have you noticed when you're filling in a a date of birth on the computer, how far down you have to scroll before you get to your year? As Judy Collins sings with such poignant loveliness, who knows where the time goes? Life is too short to... Stuff a mushroom, said Shirley Conran. Life is too short to bear a grudge, people say. Life is too short to spend it doing a job you hate, though many do that to care for their family. Life is too short. The Reverend Dr. Bill Shaw, my much-loved and respected 90-year-old divinity professor, has written a reminiscence, which he kindly passed on to me on condition that I did not comment on it to him. But I do want to say one thing about it. Bill, it's too short. Ninety years full of an amazing life, but the book is too short. We use all these haunting phrases. How can we save time? Like it was a precious resource. Conserve it because you're going to need it. It's important to make time for the things that matter. People, children, as as if we can make time. People don't like to mark time. Standing on a railway platform waiting for a train that's been delayed or like the friends of mine that we dropped at Geneva Airport yesterday who had to wait three hours for their plane. Fretting, powerless. We need to be careful how we spend time. It's a a limited resource. As with your money, you want to spend it wisely, productively, not squander it, fritter it away. Use the time. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Like it or not, like it or not, we all live our lives under the steel-tipped jackboot of the tyranny 
of time. The present, the past, the future, they are what we have. We are who we are in the context of time. The past, the present and the future. It's been said that the past is another country. They do things differently there. It's been noted that nostalgia is not what it used to be. Haunted by failures and mistakes, twisted and shaped by damage done, wallowing in a sepia-stained sentimentality, people who are predominantly backward-looking can find the past a cruel master, can discover that they're locked into it, trapped by it, crippled by it. They, they miss its imagined simplicity and perceived innocence. They hark back to the good old days when things were better, memories of the way we were. People for whom the phrase used to becomes very important, too important. We used to do this. Remember when that used to happen? Wistful and longing for a past no longer in place. Then there's the future. There's a surprising optimism in the advertising slogan that begins, The future is bright, the future is orange. And there are dreamers who fritter away the time in pointless fantasies and pipe dreams. One day this will be, one day that will happen. When my lottery numbers come up, it will all be different then. When this, when that. Sadly, on the other hand, some individuals are emotionally crippled by fear of the future, anxious and fretful in the face of an unknown that is tomorrow. While free spenders and people with big appetites for the pleasures of the flesh risk mortgaging the future, spend time now making lifestyle choices that are damaging and means that they're essentially burying time bombs of health or finance that will blow up in their face in years to come. There are those for whom the future is bleak, but they don't know that yet. There are people who are timid and demonstrate a hobbling hesitancy towards the future, afraid to grasp its possibilities, fearing the adventure, missing the opportunities that beckon. And it is indeed probably just as well, and certainly the case, that we can't know what's in front of us. And all of us have to live with the shadowy uncertainties of the future. It's all about time, the past, the future. But then, of course, there is the present moment. Oops, no, there it's gone. Now another. No, it's gone too. The now is where we operate, function, get things done, where, where things happen, where decisions are made. And these can only be made in the moment, in the now. The management gurus tell us that the essence of management is to make decisions. And the essence of good management is to make good decisions. And people respond to that. They relish the challenge of that. That's who we want to be in our working life. People who get things done, make important decisions with courage and boldness and definition. Here, now. Yet often those same people 
are not at ease with that dynamic in their personal lives. Ours is the age of commitment phobia, sometimes disguised as caution and a considered approach. No pressure, please, we say. Let me think about it, we mutter. One, one day, maybe, we suggest. Eventually, I'll get around to it, we claim. And yet, the important things cannot be put off or they get lost. I'll think about it usually means, actually, as soon as this conversation is over, I'll stop thinking about it. The salesman knows when you leave the car showroom and say, well, I'll think about it, he can see his commission going out the door. You know how it is in love? Faint heart, never one fair lady. Will I ask her out or won't I ask her out? Well, if you don't ask her out, then you haven't asked her out. And if you do ask her out, you've made a decision. Doing nothing is choosing not to ask. Not to decide. Our big life-changing, life-affecting decisions are made in the moment, in the now. For love. There now, I've said it. Will you marry me? I've said it. Will we have children? Let's try. For work, do, do you accept the job offer? You have to decide that in the now. You can't hide behind the future. Well, one day I'll get back to you on that job offer. Sometime presently unspecified, I'll tell you whether I want to marry you or not. Look, there's someone at the end of the phone with a job offer. Are you going to take it? We need your answer now. The congregation is there in the church. The best man has the ring. Do you take this woman to be your wife? Do you? Not someday over the rainbow. Just give me some more time to think about it. We're asking you now. Because this is when it matters. The same counts for faith as well. As much part of our experience of faith and our encounter with the God who calls us is that we have to sometimes say yes in the moment. Among all those big choices, do you take this man? Will you take the job? Will you get on the plane? Will you sign the consent form for the operation? Will you come and follow me if I but call your name? Those times and decisions when we want to know now and we have to know now and the past is irrelevant and the future is not much use to us, now is the time. That was the tragedy of the Pharisees at the time of Christ. They were either so thrilled to the glories of the past or so focused on a misbegotten messianic hope they failed to see right there with them now in the moment the king was present. The kingdom of God was among them but they were too preoccupied with the past or too blinkered in their view of what the future had to be like that they, they misunderstood the moment. They, they missed him. Deep inside of us, we have a, a fear of those pivotal moments, and yet we know we need them to become who we are. They make us who we are. How we decide here and now determines what our future experience will be in the profoundest way. 
all the things that have mattered to me most in my life were decided in the now, in a moment. And I couldn't let them drift into some vague future. I couldn't leave them hanging, floating in some abstract time. Now, when when I decided to get married, when I decided to say yes to the call to ministry, when I went to the church in Dunbar that I went to, when I came to Geneva, when I agreed to the adoption process beginning for my two girls, when I chose to be a Christian. And we're not talking about a pressured situation here. The kind of thing when timeshare folk corner you and put hard pressure on you, get you in a corner. I'm not talking about impulsive, emotional, thoughtless, irresponsible decision making. But when we recognise that really I do know enough, I have listened to the arguments, I see what is at stake, it's no longer enough just to hang about, I want to be in. I choose to be in. I will decide. It's not my business to tell anyone what to do. Nowadays, that just doesn't work. People are independent. Ours is a time and a generation where people are reluctant to be committed and we like to keep our options open and that's fair enough. Sure. But there is a time when the debate has to stop And we have to cast our vote in the now, not one day, our vote in the present moment. As Brutus says, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyages of their life are bound in shallows and miseries. On such a full sea we are now afloat. And we must take the current when it serves, or lose our ventures. It's always wrong and counterproductive to rush people to judgment. It's not for a preacher, impatient for results, to turn the screws on someone, some tentative pilgrim who will not and should not be shoved and elbowed into the kingdom, no matter how well-meaning that elbowing and shoving is. But I do believe that the challenge of the moment, the invitation of the now, has to be offered. The way of decision laid before people. When it comes to faith and following, when it comes to our call to full-time Christian service, when it comes to choosing to be a disciple of Christ, we are ready and we know we are. We just sometimes need to be asked. I never tire of telling how when Billy Graham, the great evangelist, came to Edinburgh, we took a busload of people up from Dunbar to Murrayfield Stadium and we sat way up in the gods, miles from the playing area. And Billy Graham preached what most professors of preaching would have called a pretty ordinary sermon. And at the end he invited all the people, 60,000, 80,000 people at Murrayfield Stadium to bow in prayer And then ask those who wanted to give their life to God and become followers of the Lord Jesus to come forward from where they were and stand on the grass in the middle of the arena. Well, I I sat there, eyes shut, head bowed, absolutely sure that this was going to be a disaster, an embarrassment. 
No one was going to respond. Everyone would just sit in their seats and Billy Graham would be just so embarrassed by it all. This is Edinburgh, Billy. We're Scots. We don't do this. Then after a few moments, I peered nervously through my fingers. And they were all gone, all the people. All the people in the row were gone. They'd gone down to the front to give their lives to Christ and their hearts to Jesus. Someone had given them a chance to make the decision. Sometimes we just need to be asked. So I'm asking. Now. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, you know everything about us. You know where we are on our journey. And when we are ready, you will call us and we know that when you call us, we will be called and we will feel called to your side, to your service, to your work. In our heart, in the secret chapel of our soul, we are listening. And when you call us, we will give our answer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a strange thing happens in Scotland. There's a whole group of people who, who don't come to communion because they don't think they're good enough. You can almost draw a line in Scottish geography and Firth of that line, folk are all, no, no, I'm not good enough to come to communion. Until I'm absolutely perfect, I don't dare take the bread and wine. It's a sad heresy that's existed for centuries. The Methodists have a different view of communion. Wesley thought of it as a, he called it a converting ordinance. A moment in someone's life where they take bread and wine and maybe for the first time they understand that this is for them. This body broken, this blood poured out, this suffering Christ, this living Lord. This is not the table of any church or denomination, but the table of the Lord. He invites us to meet him around it. Hymn 623. Here in this place, new light is streaming.